From the heart of the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to One More Cold Call, an Indiana University Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. Each week, over a casual cup of coffee, Dean Parrish meets with accomplished alumni from around the world and from all walks of life. Over a season of episodes, we hear from law school alumni who have unique stories to tell about the unfolding of their professional lives and the lessons they've learned along the way. We start each podcast off with a little bit of IU Maurer law trivia and history. Law school is an amazing school with a rich history, as one of the oldest and best public law schools in the nation. Did you know that the former Indiana Senator, Birch Bayh, a 1960 graduate of the law school, was the author of two constitutional amendments, the 25th and the 26th? He is the only non-founder to have authored two constitutional amendments, and his work on the landmark legislation, Title IX of the Higher Education Act, and his efforts to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment remains relevant today. Well, now you know. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Lori Robinson Haven. Lori is a 1998 graduate of law school. During law school, she served as an associate and then executive notes editor of the Indiana Journal of Global Legal Studies. In addition to a spectacular career, Working at firms like Epstein, Becker, and Green, and then Safarth and Shaw, and at CBS Corporation, Lori is the founder, president, and CEO of Corporate Council Women of Color. Corporate Council Women of Color is a nonprofit professional organization, which Lori created in 2004 to support and advance women of color as attorneys and to foster diversity in the legal profession. It has now more than 4,700 members. In 2020, Corporate Council Women of Color created a summer internship training program for eight students and created scholarships and mentors for them, including for a student at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. Lori's done tons. She served on the board of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, serves on the board of visitors for the law school, and is also a member of the board for North Carolina Central University Law School. She's received national recognition for her achievements. Most recently, she was named to Savoy Magazine's list of top influential African-American lawyers in America. In 2020, she was awarded the Trailblazer Award from the Metropolitan Black Bar Association. She was also named a global leader in law by Corporate Counsel Magazine. This year in 2021, she was named one of the most influential black lawyers of the last decade. She was honored alongside prominent civil rights lawyer, Ben Crump, and Eric Holder Jr., the first black U.S. Attorney General. In 2021, she also received the Diversity in Law Advocate of the Year Award. Lori is also a recipient of the Law School's Distinguished Service Award. Lori, welcome. It's so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dean Parrish. I appreciate that you have invited me to participate in today's interview. Well, thanks. I have to say, I always feel guilty of having you on one more cold call. I think people feel they had their left call, last cold call in, in law school. So it's great that you accepted the invitation. Oh, I am honored to be a part of today's interview. Well, that's great. Well, let's dig right in. Corporate Council Women of Color is just a fabulous organization. It's become a global powerhouse. Uh, as I said, more than 4,700 diverse in-house lawyers with connections, frankly, some of the most talented women lawyers in the top firms around the country. But, but can you tell us, how did, how did it all get started? What was the vision for this? Uh... Well, you know, it's interesting because when I, when I came to IU at Bloomington as a law student, my goal was to become an environmental lawyer. And I was gonna fight, fight for environmental justice around the United States and the globe. And after taking uh, an environmental law class 
and reading all those statutes, I said, well, you know what? Uh, I don't think environmental law is for me. And I ended up stumbling into labor and employment law because Raphael Prevost, um, who has passed away, but at the time he worked at the National Football League and he made it his mission to make sure to come back to IU and give students an opportunity to work in the Big Apple. So one day I was sitting in one of my classes, I didn't have a summer internship and I saw a flyer on my desk and it said, Rayfield Prevost from the NFL will be visiting the law school to talk to students about an internship. And I said, hey, what the heck? I'm gonna meet with him and I'll, I'll apply. I never thought I would ever go to New York because I did not want to go to New York. But anyway, I met with him, I applied, I got the job. And from there, I ended up moving to New York for the summer of my 2L year. And I worked in the Labor Management Council at the National Football League. And I had a big arbitration with Rayfield involving the Indiana um, Colts. And it was a labor case. I wrote an arbitration brief and I knew right then and there I was gonna be a labor and employment lawyer. And before LinkedIn and before Facebook, I was, while I was there that summer, I said, I'm gonna meet with any labor and employment lawyer who will have coffee with me in New York City. And I got this old book called Martindale Hubble, if you remember those. And I just looked up all of these people who did labor and employment law and just started cold calling them. That summer as a student, I went out and got these student business cards made. And I was able to connect with maybe five people that whole summer. One person was Susan K. Anderson, who was the assistant general counsel in labor management at CBS Corporation. And the other person was Ron Green, the name partner of Epstein, Becker and Green. So through networking, I ended up at Epstein, Becker and Green. I had an offer before I left that summer. And then some, you know, six years after meeting Susan K. Anderson, I got the call from her that they had an opening at CBS and that I should apply. So networking pays off. So I, I say that that's all in context to what brought me to Corporate Council Women of Color. When I was at law school, I never thought about doing a, a nonprofit. I never thought about helping women of color. The road that I am on is not a road that I ever thought about or ever planned to do uh, during my time as a law student. So fast forward, when I started out at Epstein, Becker and Green, it was a great firm, you know, but my challenge was that it did not have uh, a lot of diversity. And my background growing up before coming to Indiana University is that I was raised outside of Washington, DC in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is like 98% African-American. And I went to a historical black college and university, North Carolina Central University. So I was just always used to seeing people who looked like me. And I was not used to being in a minority. You know, of course, when I came to IU at Bloomington, I guess I was in the minority, but at that time they had a really strong um, student base of BALSA students and, and the environment was very friendly. So I never, you know, thought of it as anything, but, you know, this is a great school and a great opportunity. But when I got to law, to New York City and started practicing law, and it just, I had challenges 
finding mentors and, you know, making those connections with, you know, the rain partner who was connecting with the young guy who reminded him of himself when he was younger. So I remember talking to my other friends who were in New York City and we all just shared the same stories of, yeah, you know, it's really challenging to find that mentor. It's really challenging to connect and get the right assignments to build our right skills. So we just kind of supported each other. And then when I went to CBS, at that time I was in-house And again, before Facebook and before LinkedIn, there were women of color in New York City, but, you know, it was usually like one person here, one person there. You really did not have a way to find people or connect with people unless you went out and went to an event. It really took, it would take a lot of work. And we had like 10 people who got together for a dinner one night. And then I said, you know what, after this dinner, I'm going to send you an email template it's going to have your, your name, where you went to school, your practice areas, and your address, and I'm going to create a directory, and then I'm going to mail it to all of you, and literally those 10 people forwarded it to five people they knew, and literally by the end of the week of my sending my initial email, we had found 50 women of color in New York City, which was like, a, oh my gosh, can you believe that there's so many women of color in New York City? So then I went to Office Depot, I printed up this little directory, I mailed it out to the 50 people. And then I started getting calls. Well, you, you know, you miss Austin and you miss, you know, this person and that person. And then literally in a, within a year's time, we had found over a thousand women of color around the United States. It just caught on like, it was the hottest thing since uh, sliced bread because I think the need was so great And, you know, when I think about the legal profession, I think the last stats that I saw was that there are over a million, slightly over a million lawyers that practice law. And I think only 5% are African-American lawyers. So you can see where there can be some forms of isolation and just needing support and being able to connect with people. So um, that's how corporate counsel women of color got underway and it started just as a directory that I printed at Office Depot. And then we started having uh, networking dinners. And one day I got a phone call from the second firm that I worked at, Safe Shaw. And they said, you know, you're doing great work. We really believe in diversity and inclusion. We have a pro bono legal practice and we are going to help you incorporate corporate counsel women of color as a 501c3 nonprofit and we're going to do it for you for free. So, you know, I worked with them. They put through all the paperwork and, you know, I remember I was really nervous and I said, wow, I can't believe like it's, it's morphed into this thing. And I don't know if I'm ready to do this. This is not anything that I ever planned to to do, but you know, here it is today. We're going 17 years strong and the need is greater today than it was in 2000 and three and four when I got underway in, as like I say, the uh, kitchen of my Harlem apartment where I was living at the time. What a great story. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Raphael Prevost because um, we just put up new banners right outside the front entrance of the law school. And if I look through my window office, I can see him. He, he oversees, uh, he's on the corner uh, right opposite from the Starbucks, right next to Brian Hall. Um, and we honor him along with uh, some of our other trailblazing alumni. But 
what you've done seems to, uh, well, it seems to fit in, in what he thought was most important, which was networking and making connections. And, and so you've, you've honored his legacy, but what a, what a great, great story. Can you tell our listeners a little more about what Corporate Councilwoman of Color does? And, and if it started as a directory, what, what are the programs, initiatives that you're most proud of now looking back over the last 17 years? Well, you know, just to go back a second, you mentioned Ray Phil and, you know, one of the things that he did teach me, it was the importance of reaching back and and pulling those who are behind us forward. And and that's, those are some of the things that I try to do with corporate council women of, of color, but for Ray Phil making it a point every year to come back to IU to make sure law students have internship opportunities and doors are open, you know, who knows? I may not have ended up on the path in New York City where I ended up having the experience that I did that resulted in creation of Corporate Council Women of Color. So I think everybody on this call should be encouraged to go back to IU and create internship opportunities for the young students who are coming behind us, it's imperative. And then with respect to Corporate Council Women of Color, like I said, we started off doing networking receptions. And over time, then the members, they got really upset. <laughs> and they said, listen, we need more than shrimp cocktail and Chardonnay. We need career strategies for success. So from that call to action, we ended up creating you know, our first annual career strategies conference at the New York Hilton. And I remember it was like our first conference. I didn't have any money to do this conference. I walked to the Hilton and I said, I need your ballroom because we're going to do this big event. And I remember they were looking at me like, are you sure about this? And I'm like, I'm sure we're going to do it. We're going to meet the food and beverage minimum. I mean, I didn't know how this was going to happen. I was like, okay, I can tap into my 401k. I can maximize my, you know, credit card. I mean, I was like, I had planned out in my mind what I would do to cover these expenses. But what ended up happening is there were so many people who supported diversity and inclusion back in 2004. We, I got really creative. I was always like uh, an entrepreneur of such. Even when I was at law school, I created my own newsletter called Speak Now or forever hold your peace. I don't know if anyone read it, but I would write about Howie Bagels and what was going on at the law school. And we were fighting to get a TV in the basement with Dean Fromm. And I think he eventually gave it to us. But, you know, it just started out with this career strategies conference. And from that conference, we had a lot of um, senior leaders in the law who were women of color, who kind of shared their war stories with us and you know what to do and what not to do and what to look for and then I remember we started talking about um, negotiating strategies for women of color you know over the years we have found that women and women of color even though they are lawyers oftentimes they don't negotiate their salaries and the American Bar Association has noted that in particular for women of color over the span of their career, by the time they get behind with the wage gap, they can lose out in almost over a million dollars in compensation. So that's one of the things that we, we focus on. We talk to them about equity awards and 
you know, making sure you're getting your worth and understanding right now that there's a talent war going on and there's a talent war for diverse lawyers. And, you know, if you don't like where you are, you don't have to stay there. There are numerous companies out there that will be willing to, you know, take, take your skill set and utilize you. So it's kind of been um, a mentorship and a sisterhood and a support connection. And recently we were talking to many of our members at the last conference in Los Angeles. And we came to find out that a large number of our population in our organization, they are first generation college students or first generation lawyers and you know they they shared with us you know many times they can't go to their mom and dad and talk about negotiating strategies or what do I do with my 401k or hey I got passed over for this promotion how do I handle that how do I pivot so a lot of the information they're getting it's coming from the women at corporate council women of color so we do the career strategies conference then we started hearing from the law school students and they were like, well, what about us? So some 15 years ago, we started the My Life as a Lawyer scholarship program, which started out as a scholarship and has now morphed into scholarship, internships, fellowships, and Dean, you know, thanks to you, I, I might've started it because of you, the CCWC internship program, because at the time, you were, we were dealing with COVID and you were looking for ways to find students opportunities, even if it's virtual. And you reached out to me and some of the other um, fellow student alums and, and you said, hey, you know, do you have opportunities? And I think from there, I'm pretty sure that sparked and said, you know what, you're right. These students need a chance to build their resume during COVID. So we offered an internship in 2020, thanks to you, Dean. Um, we were able to get a great IU student, and then we ended up doing it again this year. And we were able to get another IU student who did an excellent job. So, you know, I'm really proud of the work um, that we're doing because we are building and contributing to the pipeline. We must do that. And then recently, uh, NASDAQ, you know, there's been a big push for diversity and inclusion. We have a CCWC member who works for NASDAQ that they put forth a proposal to the Securities and Exchange Commission that all of their companies listed under NASDAQ should have diversity on the boards and disclosure. And CCWC wrote a comment letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission supporting the diversity initiative. And that rule has been adopted. So, you know, now we're in the process of developing a board ready directory of women of color attorneys who are ready to serve on these uh, Fortune 500 corporate boards. So I think that's the next frontier, getting women lawyers on corporate boards. And I believe also in the C-suite as, you know, chief legal officers, as well as chief executive officers. That's fabulous. And if you are able to diversify the boards, that's going to help in diversifying the C-suites. It will just, yes. it will just lead. Well, and I, I should say, look, uh, uh, you're very gracious there, but uh, it, you know, the, the 
being it, the opportunities you provided our students is just phenomenal. And as you say, those networks are so important. And if you can get those connections started as a law student, they're just in so much better a position than having to do what you did, which was build it and, and get connected many years later. So we're really grateful for you hosting our students the last two years. It's, it's made a big difference for them. And I know they, uh, they were thrilled. Um, well, you know, you, you do, you've done all this for women uh, corporate, but you, you also run a men of color conference now. Am I right there? Or you're right, because then what happened, <laughs> the men of color said, hey, you know, I think within corporations in particular, there was so much focus on women and women of color. The men of color were feeling left out. And then they said, well, what about us? And we also found that for many men of color in, in the corporate legal departments, many of them were you know, they were transitioned out and we, we didn't even know that they had left the company until we asked about them. And then it would be like, oh, you know, John left three years ago. And it's like, what? So we created a men of color event three years ago. And we, it, I mean, it was a great, it was a great experience for me to see how the men conference versus how the women conference. One, the women, when they conference, they're on their cell phones, they're running back to their hotel rooms, they're doing work, they're being interrupted with the calls. The men turn their phones off. And when they're in the room, they're there and they're present. And then the men, um, you know, when we were in the room, a lot of them were making connections for business, business development. The Law firm men were connecting with the in-house men and it was translating to business right then and there where the women, it was kind of like, well, I need to get to know you a little more. Maybe in three or four years, we can do some deals. So I, I, I really appreciated the uh, opportunity to do that with the men of color. And it created such a kumbaya moment for the men. Like, you know, they were crying some of the sessions. It was so... It's nothing I've ever seen or I've ever experienced before, but I mean, I think it just really goes to, again, the need of this, you know, we have been in this space for 17 years before George Floyd, you know, there are a lot of people who after George Floyd, now they're in the space, now they've discovered diversity, equity and inclusion, but we've been doing this for so long. So it's not surprising to me that the men would come together and they would cry and get emotional because they had people to support them and that the women connect in the same way because many people feel isolated. You know, it's tough to be in a workplace where you might be the only one. And, you know, what was interesting about COVID is, you know, we've read many of the articles in New York Times. Many people, you know, said, you know, it was great to actually work from home because I didn't have to go in the office and be reminded that I'm the only one, or I didn't have to go to the office and deal with those microaggressions that I deal with on the job. So I think the lesson learned is everyone's coming back to the office at the end of the year or next year is that, you know, companies just need to make sure that they pressure test their culture and make sure that it's opening and welcoming to diverse talent. Yeah, I think that's so important. As you say, it's uh, 
know, I think there's a real question whether some of the lessons learned in the last couple of years are, are going to keep going forward or whether we'll see it stall. And it's, it's nice to have organizations that have been around for a long time, that it's not just a, uh, you know, a flash in the pan. You, you've done a lot then, right? You've got, you've got uh, directory, networking, career conferences for women. You've, you've added the men, you've added students, you've added internships, you've added scholarships, you've got, uh, you now have got the board initiative, uh, you're working in the C-suites. Um, what's next in the future? What's, what are the initiatives that you're most excited about? And, and what does the future hold for, uh, for CCWC? Yeah, I like to laugh and say, clearly next frontier will be pets. We will include pets into this <laughs> initiative. I mean, I, I really believe that a couple of things. The the board initiative, it's it's going to take several years for the launch of this, um, especially now that NASDAQ has this rule that has been approved. And NASDAQ did say that if companies don't comply, they will be removed from the NASDAQ listing. I believe there'll be several steps to, you know, for companies to correct the lack of diversity. But, you know, Importantly for corporate council women of color, making sure that we have individuals who are board ready and ready to serve. So in, in our last event, we partnered with KPMG, we've partnered with Deloitte, they're providing you know, training to our members on how to read financial statements, how to be a great board member, keeping focus on that will be critical. And then I think the next step for us will also be criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. You know, I have, um, I have uh, my mom, she lives in Maryland, and she always has all of these friends that need all this legal help. So <laughs> she called me one day and it was a friend of a friend of a family. And the young guy got pulled over with the police from by the police. He was with five, five other kids in the car. Just the young kid, you know, making young kid mistakes. But anyway, he was given a court hearing in Florida. So my mom called me and like, you gotta help, you gotta help. So I called one of my CCWC members and she helped find him a lawyer. And um, they went to the courthouse. The young man went with the lawyer and the mother told my mom that when he walked in with the lawyer, the police officer that pulled him over his mouth dropped on the table because he was so surprised that this young man had legal representation. And anyway, the judge ended up telling him, look, don't do it again. I'm gonna let you out for, you know, be good. Don't let it happen again and go on. But you just think about how many people who don't have access to a lawyer who will get them out and then they end up incarcerated. So, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna actually honor um, Christina Swartz, who is the executive director of the Innocence Project at our next conference. And, you know, I just wish that with all of the law firms and all the in-house corporate legal departments that have pro bono practices, that they can use those resources toward criminal justice reform. And I think that's how we make the world a better place. I think you're right. And it, you know, the data is so clear on that as to the disparate um, you know, if, if somebody has representation without representation, the outcomes can be radically different and, and that shouldn't be the case. So I, well, that's, 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 that's a big task. I, people have been trying to 
cut the, uh, you know, crack the criminal justice reform, not for a long time, but it's great to have you sort of focusing your eyes on that. And uh, um, well, that's, uh, look, I, I know you talked earlier about a little bit about how you got started and, 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 and that you came to IU, but, but I've got to ask you, looking back, right, uh, maybe one, what brought you to Bloomington and Indiana University? And, and um, did you have any sense that this is where your future was going to be? Uh, like, it sounds like it, you were thinking environmental, but uh, uh, looking back, could you imagine a career that's been this rich and this sort of varied and had such an impact? Never in my life would I believe that I would be the, you know, top 10 African-American lawyer with, with Eric Holder. I mean, I, but, but I would say that, okay, you asked a good question. IU for me was sort of like my experience at North Carolina Central University. At NCCU, it was just a very supportive environment. And Vice President Kamala Harris says the same thing about her experience at Howard, um, NCCU instilled in me that I could do and be anything I want to be. And when I was at NCCU, I was Miss North Carolina Central University. And I just remember that the professors were very supportive of me and accommodated me and my programs and my initiatives. And at that time, I ended up meeting the chancellor of North Carolina Central University, who is Julius Chambers, who's now passed away, but he was the executive director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So whenever he'd come to New York, he'd invite me to Legal Defense Fund dinners. And, you know, he, he did pass away, but I was, I was glad that I was able to serve on the Legal Defense Fund, you know, following in his legacy. And then when I came to IU at Bloomington, you know, like I said, it was the first time I was a minority, but even at IU, I felt like opportunities were available for me. I was the student government president. I was able to do moot court. I was able to write onto the Indiana Journal of Global Legal Studies. I created my own newsletter. Like, and the, the, the professor supported me. And my father was a lawyer. And my father passed away my first year at IU at Bloomington. And I remember, you know, Professor Shornhurst and Professor Dorkin. They were just so supportive of me. And, you know, they helped me get through that, they and the students there. So, you know, I, I would never believe that I'd be on the path that I, I am, but I was able to go to great schools like IU and NCCU and be supportive and then find great companies like CBS and Epstein, Becker and Green and Safe Harp Shaw that have supported my career development and growth. You know, it's great to hear. I, you know, one of the reasons I'm so proud to be dean here is that I, it is such a fabulous community, and you hear that all the time about people having these unique stories where people supported them. And um, you know, that's not true at every place. I, you know, you almost think it is because you know you, or at least I do, because I'm surrounded by these wonderful people. But, but I know in a lot of other schools where there isn't that sort of uh, intrinsic support. Uh, I have to say though, I, I may edit out your talk about the Speak Now newsletter and the getting the TV because uh, my current <laughs> SBA president was talking about getting flat screen TVs and who knows what I'm gonna get asked once they hear this go live. I had to fight from tooth and nail, but I do have to go back. You said, how did I end up at IU at Bloomington? Yeah. And how I ended up there is that my mother was good friends with a gentleman, Julio Costillo. And he had gone to school with Frank Mott. And my mom was just having a random conversation. And, and Julio said, you know, you should have Lori apply to IU at Bloomington. 
And I went to IU and several other schools. But when I came to IU and visit, I remember the students, they took me around, they showed me the apartments. And at the other schools, they were just like, it's exam time, we're busy, leave us alone. And just, you know, Bloomington is just that, it's that little town that has everything in it. It was like a little New York City in the Midwest. And I would go to Snow Lion Restaurant, which is closed now. And I just had great friends. And I, I really enjoyed my experience at IU. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Frank Modley. There's another legend in our history, right? The, uh, yes. the number of people he's, he brought in and recruited was just, just phenomenal. And, and what a, what a great person. We, we, we still see him occasionally in his, you know, his, his wife is a judge here locally and she's, she's amazing too. Yeah. I mean, you know, think about it. We, we've just mentioned two people that we know of that have, they've given back and have had such impact, Dean Motley and Raphael Purvel. And if each of us would just do a little bit of that, you know, it will just make a tremendous amount of difference. You know, I, I absolutely, I, so I completely agree with you. I, uh, you mentioned other names too, like the number of stories about Len Fromm, right. And, oh, yes. and his contributions. And, <laughs> yes. but, but no, I'm, I'm a firm believer on that. I, uh, you know, I, I always say, if, you know, every IU graduate should put the thumb on the scale a little bit whenever they see anybody that has on the resume, you know, IU Bloomington. And, uh, you know, if we just all put a little more sort of, you know, hired IU Maurer grads, turn business within the IU Maurer network. And frankly, I think the way my vision has always been that the way you build a school's reputation is not just all the good things you're doing, but a little bit of buzz about everybody saying, you know, geez, there's some things that happened uh, or some people and, uh, at IU that are spectacular. And as you say, Raphael Prevost is a great example of that. But geez, you look at all the other trailblazers, right? Juanita Kid Stout, the first African-American judge appointed anywhere to a state court and the first uh, African-American woman to serve as state Supreme Court judge, you know, 1948 graduate of ours. Or uh, I just interviewed Clarin Nardi Riddle, uh, the first woman attorney general of Connecticut. Or um, uh, uh, Rudy Lozano, who's first Hispanic judge in uh, in uh, Indiana um, uh, on the federal courts, and uh, you know, uh, you look at you look in the past, and you look at these trailblazers, and and you you know what? More often than not, they're people who have the same thing that you've given us, which is this sort of willingness to give back in a way that makes the next generation or the next person's career that much more meaningful. So I, uh, I'm rambling a little bit, but I completely agree with you. I think it makes such a difference. And it's part of, I think, what makes our community special. I, I agree. We have a rich history. And I appreciate that you're creating a form, form to tell about the history. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I uh, you know, uh, partly, you know, a school is, is only as good as its history, right? And, and being able to capture stories of people like you and uh, our remarkable alumni, I think is what, what it gives us texture and it distinguishes us from, from other places, which, you know, you, you don't want to be just a number. You want, you want to be a place that, that has made a deep difference in its community and, and telling the stories of our graduates and the people who have come before is one way of doing that. You know, that, and that leads me to a great question. If you were to do it all again, what advice would you have for young lawyers or young law students just starting out? What, if, if you could imagine back and you to say, this is the piece of advice I wish I'd gotten when I was just beginning, what, what would it be? You know what? I, when I think about one of the things that I wish I had done when I was, two things I wish I would have done when I was at IU, as I look back, but I don't know if I had the bandwidth to do it at the time, but I would have done the dual MBA program 
that's something that I, I wish I could have taken advantage of at that time. And then another thing is I wish I would have done the um, one of the clinics because I think it would have, you know, also given me um, a head start in practicing law and, you know, it would help me appreciate the coursework more, especially like civil procedure or criminal procedure. So I wish that I had done done that more. But other than that, I'm really proud of the experience that I had at IU. Um, I loved living in Bloomington. I loved attending IU. And if I had to do it all again, I would attend IU at Bloomington School of Law. That's music to the dean's ears. And I, I <laughs> well, I think your advice though is so good, right? For students to just get the most of their time here and and the joint degrees, as you say, in the JD MBA is a fabulous program. And the clinics, you, you're right. Uh, like I, I remember when I was in law school, uh, the best uh, experience I had to learn how to interview clients came through a, a clinical experience where I actually was meeting clients. And and uh, what, what I think a lot of students miss is that even if you're planning to do a you know, you're going into corporate law in the largest law firm in the in the world or whatnot, those skills that you learn in the clinics translate almost directly and make you a better lawyer, even as you're going into something very different. It's just, it's all, it's all being a good service person and, and somebody who cares and is empathetic about people that you're working with. So that's, that's fabulous advice. Laurie, we're running out of time. Any last minute thoughts? Oh, no, like I can go for another hour. Uh, I've enjoyed this. I've enjoyed this. <laughs> well, thank you. You you ask great questions. Uh, you know what? I would just encourage um, the student body to just make sure that you're reaching out and utilizing the career services. Also reach out and connect with, um, you know, the grads of the law school. One of the things that we did the last two years with our interns, I compiled a directory of 400 people who are lawyer practitioners. And I told our interns, your job each week, you must connect with 15 people on this list. And you must stay in contact with these people that you connect with, even after internship is over. And, you know, we're not networking enough. We're not connecting enough. And, you know, these are the connections that we will make that will, you know, sustain our careers over 20, 30, 40, 50 year span of time. So I think just, just keep networking, be open to opportunities, even if it's in, you know, a part of the country that you don't see as, you know, desirable. When I look at our members who are very successful, it's, it's not necessarily the members who said, I have to get a job and it has to be in New York City and I'm not taking any other jobs in New York City. I mean, they've moved around. They've worked in Bensonville, Arkansas. They've worked in Nashville, Tennessee. They've gone to parts of the country that most of us might not be interested in going. But in going to those places, it's opened up a world of opportunities for them because they got the experience. So, you know, consider going to that field office instead of the headquarter law firm um, if, if you have that opportunity. That's fabulous advice. I, I think students are getting the message, but it's, uh, it's hard to emphasize just how important those relationships and those networks are. Well, Lori, thank you so much. L let me end by thanking you. You know, you serve on our board of visitors. Uh, uh, you know, I, um, we are incredibly proud. I know you said you were flattered, but we are proud that, that you achieved that distinction of being, geez, one of the top 10 most, uh, most known and, and uh, 
Um, you know, geez, to be with Eric Holder in the list of the top <laughs> 10 uh, African-American lawyers of the past decade, that is amazing. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for, uh, thank you for representing the school so well. And thank you for joining us today on One More Cold Call. Thank you for having me, Dean Parrish. And you're doing a great job. So I look forward to the other interviews that you'll be doing throughout the year as well. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. You too. And thanks to our listeners for joining us too. Don't forget to follow us on social media at both at Austin Parish and at IU Mauer Law on Twitter and Facebook. And we hope you make plans to come back to Bloomington soon. Each year, over a thousand alumni come back to campus, judging moot court or mock trial, serving as mentors or helping our students in other ways. We hope you will too. And when you do, please reach out. Until the next time, this is one more cold call an IU Mauer School of Law alumni podcast.